I'm David Reiner. I teach at Judge Business School, Cambridge University. And I'm Chris Hewn, and I'm an energy and climate change consultant and former Secretary of State for Energy and Climate Change. David and Chris, thank you very much indeed for talking for the Centre for Business Research podcast series today. Here at its Hinkley Point C Revisited Public Policy Workshop. Perhaps if we start with you, David, public opinion on nuclear energy, it's for it. Well, four, I think, is maybe a bit of an overstatement. The British public over the last decade, I think, has been relatively positive towards nuclear power. It actually has proven to be fairly robust, even in the face of events like Fukushima Daiichi nuclear accident, where in a number of other countries we saw support for nuclear power drop significantly. So you have, I think, a you know, small plurality. I, I, there's not a, quite a majority, but there's you know maybe 35-40% of, of the British public that would be supportive in general of, of nuclear power. You'd have 25 to 30 percent that would be opposed, and many in the middle who are either neutral or don't care very much. And on both sides, you have quite strong and strident views amongst a relatively small segment, but maybe 10 percent on both sides who would be either very strongly supportive or very strongly opposed to the use of nuclear power. Had there been any polls on the Hinkley contract itself? It's been controversial because it involves France, EDF Energy, and also China, CGN. There haven't been a huge amount of focus on this in terms of general surveys. There, there have been a few efforts, but I, I would say it sort of falls out in a fairly similar manner. I think most people aren't really paying attention to this issue. I think they have kind of a general view, and I think those who have been supportive of nuclear power are supportive of the Hinkley Point deal, and those who have been opposed have been equally opposed to it. But I don't, I don't think that has really done much to shift overall opinion. So going forward, how would you view our nuclear futures if we were to look at the past, at people's opinions, and at government policy? Well, I think the biggest challenge nuclear power has is that it requires either a very significant, very aggressive uh, climate policy in the form of a, a substantial, very substantial carbon price, and or some sort of industrial policy of the same sort of significant, substantial government backing. I don't see, looking back, looking forward as well, much evidence that there's much appetite in terms of either of those. The the current government under Theresa May has made much more noises about industrial strategy than one can think of in the past few decades. And even then, I think it will be hard to do much more than a few uh, nuclear power plants. And I think similarly in terms of carbon price, there's been an appetite, a willingness to support nuclear power plants in the form of Hinkley Point and maybe a a few others. But nothing like the scale that would be needed uh, to meet the climate challenges, to meet the 80% decarbonization target by 2050 that we've set out in, in the Climate Change Act. Chris, if we turn to you, you were a former Secretary of State for Energy. I don't know if you signed off the Hinkley Point deal, but certainly it stretches back. 10 years, so it must have been under consideration on your watch. What's your reading of the final signing of this agreement in September this year, after the Prime Minister herself had halted it and then said, OK, it can go ahead? Well, I don't think this is the best deal that we could have done. I quite understand why it was done, and I think it's important that it should go ahead and that it has been done. But I think that we could have driven a harder bargain. And part of the problem that the ministers had who did have to negotiate with EDF was that the Treasury 
and particularly a large part of the Conservative Party were so publicly mustard keen on making the deal happen that it was very hard to persuade negotiating counterparts that we could actually walk away from it. And if you can't walk away from the negotiating table, then the negotiating partner you're with knows that you are vulnerable and is able to extract a better deal. So commercially, we needed to be able to walk away to get the best deal, and we couldn't. So that was a big problem. But it is important for it to go ahead, I think, for all sorts of reasons. There's still an awful lot of uncertainty about the low-carbon future. There's uncertainty about the extent of demand for electricity. There's going to be more demand coming from electric vehicles. We don't know how much more demand there may be coming if we have to electrify our heat, which is currently supplied largely by gas. So for these sort of reasons, we don't really know either, have a very good handle on how much we're going to be able to save in terms of energy use. So for all these sort of reasons, it makes sense to have a portfolio of different low-carbon sources of energy and to keep them in the running until things become clearer. It's not wise for government ever to bet the farm on one solution, whether that's gas with carbon capture and storage, renewables or nuclear. So I think that's the reason why it will go ahead. But one of the key things that has been happening since I was Secretary of State is that there's been a big shift in the relative costs of the most successful renewable energies compared with nuclear. Nuclear has not got cheaper. In fact, it's substantially more expensive, if the evidence of this deal is the case. And you mentioned solar panels falling, the cost in one year from China. Yes, but I think it's first, just to give you a sort of context, solar panels came down by 50% in one year, and the trend is very clear. Every doubling of global deployment, solar is falling in price by nearly 15%. And onshore wind is also falling in price by less, but it's still falling in price with every doubling of global deployment. Nuclear, by contrast, this contract was signed at £92.50 per megawatt hour, whereas when I was Secretary of State, the nuclear estimate was £66 a megawatt hour. So it's actually more expensive at a time when solar and onshore wind have been falling very substantially and can clearly be produced more cheaply than nuclear power, although they are intermittent. They, you only get electricity from solar and onshore wind when there is wind and when the sun is shining, whereas obviously with nuclear you get it all, all year round. The big issue, though, is providing backup for intermittent solar and wind so that we can have energy when we need it, and nuclear is not the best fit for that because The cost of nuclear is so high, the capital investment is so high, that once you've built it, you want it to run all the time. So if you want a a fuel source that can back up for intermittent solar and onshore wind, that can be turned on and turned off as needed, it's better to go with something cheaper. And I think probably gas with carbon capture and storage is a, a cheaper option. You said that you didn't have any concerns about China and security, something the mainstream media in the UK has voiced a lot. We're giving China our civil nuclear secrets, so that's not going to be good for our defence or for our security. Yet you said you had more concern about China and our comms systems than you do about China and nuclear energy. Just briefly, can you explain why? Yes, I mean, I think, you know, we've already got a a major Chinese company, Huawei, involved in doing contracting in the telecom sector, which is 
in terms of data and potential for hacking and everything else, far more sensitive than building a nuclear power plant. And it's actually in the UK's interest to ensure that all forms of low-carbon energy are as cheap and as safe as possible. And if China is going to be one of the big makers, users and exporters of nuclear power plants in the future, which I think it probably is going to be, then it makes sense for them to go through a process in a developed country like the UK of dealing with the Office of Nuclear Regulation and meeting first world standards. That's what they want to do. They want to have the imprimatur of being able to turn around to other people potentially buying nuclear power stations and saying, look, we've managed to build one in Britain. The British have been tough on the regulation. We've met all those hurdles. We are safe. We're producing a first world product. And that's actually a good thing for us because we want this as a global problem, which we're trying to tackle climate change. We're trying to get emissions down as much as possible. And actually having a major nuclear producer producing good, safe nuclear plant is a good thing. All right. Just finally, I'll turn to you both. But first, David, again, how likely it is, because it can take 30 years, that we will see Hinkley Point C actually built all the possible unknown unknowns that might occur, including perhaps another nuclear accident elsewhere that makes it less popular with the British public. But how likely are we to see Hinkley C come into action and produce energy for the UK? And what about Bradwell, that's mooted to be next and possibly built by China, or size we'll see? Just briefly, are we going to actually get more nuclear power stations? Well, I, I would say that you don't need to get into unknown unknowns. I think there are a number of known unknowns, such as nuclear accidents, even with very small probability, that might have some impact. I don't think that's likely to be the reason why Hinkley Point C doesn't go ahead. I think there might be other events, other issues that might transpire that may prevent plants from going forward. I think on balance, Hinkley Point C likely will go ahead. I don't know if that's 80% or 90 you know, hard to know exact precise percentages. Uh, but I think there is a pretty good chance that will go ahead. I think there is a, a very strong interest in uh, following on from that in the Chinese having their own plant, whether at, at Bradwell or, or elsewhere. And it's easy to imagine, perhaps with that momentum and an interest in demonstrating a number of different nuclear technologies, ABWRs and the AP1000 and so on, that might lead to, you know, several plants. I, that's hardly a nuclear renaissance. It, it wouldn't even replace the nuclear power plants that will be coming offline in the next decade or so. So I think there'll be some like-for-like -like replacement of nuclear, but I don't think you'll see anything like the sort of hope that, that some in the industry had for a nuclear renaissance. You'll see, I think, again, a few plants built and, again, inadequate otherwise in terms of meeting our longer-term aspiration on climate change. Do you agree with that, Chris? Just a one-minute summary. Are we actually going to see Hinkley Point come into operation? Bradwell size we'll see? I think we'll see a small number of plants. I agree with David. I think we'll see a small number of plants built in the UK, but the fundamental economics is moving against nuclear. Nuclear has not managed to reduce its costs, whereas the renewable sector is reducing costs really very impressively. And you are actually getting to a situation now in sunny parts of the world where solar is competitive with the cheapest electricity coming from artificially cheap shale gas. And if that's the case, then it's not just nuclear that's got to worry, it's also the fossil fuel industry. 
Chris Hoon, David Rayner, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Centre for Business Research podcast series on our Hinkley Point C Revisited Policy Workshop. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.